Come, gracious Spirit, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So an observation from history, not mine, but probably many of us, that people left to their own abilities, people left alone, have proven over and over again that they cannot govern effectively. And I add, especially in ways that encourage the advancement of the weakest or to encourage the care of our good earth. Rules are necessary and intended to keep order. A few people always take advantage of them. That's why we have rules like speed limits, guidelines for recycling, rules for balance of power in our Constitution, rules at school, and on and on the list goes. Rules are necessary. And so at Monday night community meal, there are rules. They are necessary for the welfare of the group. The doors open at 5 p.m., not 4.55, 5 p.m. And the doors to the church are locked. The meal is only served from 5.30 to 6.30, and we wait in line to be served. Children and parents get to go first. We treat others with respect. No drug or alcohol in the premises. No seconds. No takeouts. Rules are necessary for the common good when we're in social groups. Our volunteers intervene at times to de-escalate inappropriate behavior, applying firmness and calmness. And thinking about following the rules in social settings, I think it often means a kind of a personal sacrifice of what we might prefer for the benefit of the group. Which brings us to Micah's historical context. Micah writes in the days of the kings, three of them to be exact, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, it was a fearful and dreadful time in history because for the last number of decades, Assyria is coming in with their influence, with their armies. The divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah are in a setting of fear and uncertainty. The Assyrian Empire is the dominant power. They keep a professional standing army made up of their own people as well as people from conquered nations. And they're known for their courage, their toughness, their violence, and their cruelty. And over the decades, they are closing in on Jerusalem. And yet, as an elder and a prophet, Micah does not speak against Israel. Rather, he calls attention to the injustice of Judah's leaders and priests and prophets. And so the oppressors that we read about in Micah 2 and 3 and other chapters are the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. So in Micah 6, we had the appearance of a courtroom hearing where God, as plaintiff, brings a lawsuit against the people. Lawsuits aren't fun. But the suit alleges the people have breached the contract or covenant they made with God when they were delivered from Egypt, from slavery. 
And the evidence is overwhelming. Reading through Micah, the oppressors are taking houses, inheritances, and fields, taking of garments, perhaps in pledge for debts, the eviction of widows from houses, wicked scales and weights, meaning unbalanced purposely to gain profit from the seller, and bribes, and on and on. And the plaintiff says to the people, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Kind of gets the sense of this text, doesn't it? And then Micah speaks for the defense with creative hyperbole. It's, I could say, exaggerated hyperbole, which is the two words mean the same thing, but I'm just trying to make a point here. Exaggerated hyperbole. Listen to these possibilities that people bring as, as, as uh, ways they can be acceptable to God. Shall I come with burnt offerings, calves a year old? Dairy farmers know that a calf a year old is just about the prime age to be a benefit to the herd. That young calf is going to be soon brought into the herd and be a part of the production. And even if it's not a dairy calf, it's, going, it's considered the perfect sacrifice in Hebrew history for the Lord. But he's not finished. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? I mean, how are you going to do that? Thousands of rams. Are you kidding? That would be a bloodbath, wouldn't it? Or 10,000 rivers of oil. You can see the point here. It's hyperbole at its best. But more sobering, shall I give my firstborn for my sins? A practice of surrounding nations in the early times was to sacrifice the oldest son at a young age to the fires. And it's shocking to read that King Solomon did so at some point in his reign. The answer is just simply, no, a thousand times no, more exaggeration, a thousand times no to all of these. You're missing the point. There's no numerical acceptable sacrifice that people can offer to God beyond equity and justice. And God here as the plaintiff and now as the judge simply gives the defendants what they are required to do is simply to fulfill the spirit of the covenant or the spirit of the rules, not the letter of it. Those well-known words, do justice, be in love with mercy and kindness, and walk humbly with God. So how do we imagine ourselves receiving this life sentence from God, doing mercy and justice and kindness, and humility. As Mary Hinkle Shore points out, God chose Jesus to be the source of our life, the source of our wisdom, to bring the abundant life we read about. She names Christ, the word of Christ, as all kind of shorthand for God's intervention in this age to bring about a new age. And that's exactly what Jesus expands on in what we know as the Beatitudes, where popular wisdom is kind of turned on its back. 
we know the Beatitudes as the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus positions himself as the new Moses, speaking God's word to the people, and he sits down to share some wisdom, some Sophia. The ten are often understood as absolute law, and yet these Beatitudes differ from the Ten Commandments. They are summarizing inner and outward practices of the heart that shape how we regard ourselves and how we regard our interactions with each other and actually with all of humanity. And they begin with the well-known phrase, blessed, blessed are. Blessed are you when. A pronouncement of attitude and action is followed by the blessing received. And the focus is on those who will be blessed by living with them and under God's rule or God's kingdom as we recite in the Lord's Prayer. Furthermore, they are a word of hope and guidance to those who suffer, to those of us who mourn, to those of us who lack power, who are not aggressive, who are kind and persecuted for it. For Jesus sums them up and says, those who live with them will be called great in the kingdom of God. It comes no surprise to us that this kind of wisdom is in conflict with the powers and authorities of our world, then and now. Paul writes about these kind of conflicting things in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. For example, the first beatitude that I think in my own mind, the way I think about it, is kind of sets up all the rest of them. Here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's this wonderful story that illustrates this thing of being poor in spirit. I'm sure a number of you have heard this story. A long time ago, there was a wise Zen master, and people from far and near would come to hear his wisdom. Many would come and ask them to teach them, to enlighten them. And he seldom turned anybody away. And one day, a very important man who was used to giving orders and used to uh, receiving uh, obedience, he came to see this master. And he said, I have come today to ask you to teach me. Would you open my mind to enlightenment, please? And the tone was kind of like expectation that I'll receive and go away a better person. He's used to getting his own way, in other words. The master smiled and said they should discuss this matter over a cup of tea. And when the tea was served, the master poured his visitor a cup, and he poured, and he poured, and he poured up to the rim, and he kept on pouring, and the tea overflowed the cup and spilled all over the table, and the man was like, what are you doing? You're making a big mess of things. Can't you see the cup is full? Yes, said the teacher, and so are you. 
And so are you. You are like this teacup. You're so full that nothing can be added. Come back to me when your cup is empty. Come back to me with an empty mind. I would maintain that the first beatitude, and in fact all of them, invite us to have an empty cup, to be receptive, or be open to what is just and merciful and humble. I have observed at our Monday night community meal that our director and other volunteers applying the spirit of the rules against the letter of the rules to meet basic human needs. It was 4.45 p.m. one evening. It was nasty, cold, raining, and one volunteer invited people to enter 15 minutes early. It was against the rules. A guest came after the closing time to be served, needed to use the restroom, was invited to eat. It was against the rules. Another guest recently was sent home with a generous takeout portion for a family member who couldn't attend. But it was against the rules. Recently, a volunteer listened to a guest in the lobby to a man sharing marital problems long after the closing hour for about 20 minutes. It was against the rules. These examples, like the Beatitudes, are good news. They are good news. So what if we think of them as congratulations? Congratulations. When you are spiritually poor, when you mourn, when you are meek, when you hunger and thirst for what is right in God's wisdom, when you are merciful, when you are pure in heart, when you are a peacemaker, and when you are persecuted for what is right. Congratulations, for these are acceptable sacrifices. People of East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church, congratulations when you empty yourselves and become open to the act to to act on the rules of justice and mercy, kindness and humility, as the acceptable sacrifice to God. May it be so for all of us as we move forward. Amen.